Good morning again. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. That'll be our sermon text for this morning. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 14. Uh, Before we read that together, let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would uh, come now by your Spirit, that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear your Word, to understand your Word, to believe your Word. Come and draw us closer to your Son, Jesus, that we would rest in his saving power displayed in the cross and in the resurrection. Uh, Come and humble us, uh, point out our sin where we need to see our sin, grant us repentance and faith. Father, work in us uh, to the end of new obedience that we would go out from here ready to serve you with our whole hearts, to live for you in everything. Father, that's your work, uh, the work of your spirit. So we pray that your spirit would be at work through your word this morning in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 3, beginning with the first verse. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. I don't understand the human heart. Don't get me wrong, I've studied it, and I've read books about it, and I've listened to sermons on the topic. I've talked to other people about their hearts. And of course, I have one. I've prayed about my own heart. 
I've peered into the deep waters, as Proverbs describes it. I've talked about my heart with Deborah and with close friends and with paid counselors. And my conclusion is that there is so much that I still don't understand. A few weeks ago, we began talking about um, sort of the big key categories in the Christian life. The story of grace, we talked about that last week. Uh, The human heart, which is what we're going to talk about this week. And then the call to love, which we'll talk about the next two weeks. Uh, this morning, we're, we're talking about the human, human heart, and, and if, if nothing else, what I'd, I'd like you to come away with is, is the importance of the human heart as it's oriented toward our Heavenly Father. That's kind of a mild thing, I guess, in some ways. Uh, the importance of a heart that's oriented toward our Heavenly Father. Before we get too far, I I should make a note about language. We talked about this a little bit in Sunday school, if you were there. And that is that there are lots of words used for heart in Scripture. Uh, Soul, spirit, heart, mind, kidneys. And uh, those words are kind of rough synonyms. Um, They have overlapping meanings. Uh, but they're not, they're not always quite the same thing. Maybe they had, they're, they're highlighting one thing or another. Um, kind of like the words odor and fragrance. Right? You would never ever go up to your wife or your girlfriend and say, what's that odor? Right? <laughs> Even though it means the same thing as fragrance. Rough, rough uh, synonyms. Uh, maybe having shades of, of meaning that differ a little bit. The, the words soul and heart and mind are like that. They're, they're really synonymous, then they may be highlighting slightly different things. Uh, so when I talk about the soul or the spirit or the mind or the heart or the kidneys, uh, most of the time I'm really referring to the same thing. Uh, I'm referring to the, the, and the scriptures, more importantly than me, right? <laughs> the scriptures are referring to the same thing. They're referring to the, the immaterial aspect of the human person, the immaterial aspect of who we are, the, the inner man. It's another phrase scripture uses to describe the same reality. Well, our outline for this morning is, uh, you can see on the back of your bulletin, there are three sort of main points. Uh, the orientation of the heart, the misorientation of the heart, and the grace that the heart needs. Probably should have had that last point be the reorientation of the heart, but oh well. Um, the orientation of the heart, the misorientation of the heart, and the grace that the heart needs. So first, the, the orientation of the heart. What I actually want to do first is, uh, in this first point, is, is kind of summarize some key points about the heart before we jump into the text of Genesis chapter 3. Uh, some things that will help orient us as we come to Genesis 3. And one of the most important points is to, to realize that our hearts were made to worship our Creator, uh, to, to actively uh, to, to know Him and be known by Him, to love Him and be loved by Him, to, uh, to serve Him and even to be served by Him. Remember, the Son of Man came to, uh, not to be served, but to serve, right? He came to serve us. Uh, So I'm not going to really argue that at the moment. We could look at all kinds of scripture passages that call us to know and love and serve God. 
and, uh, and lots of others that talk about God's promises to know and love and serve his people. But for now, I just want to sort of state the fact that we were created to be in communion with our God continually, to know and be known, to love and be loved, to serve and be served. And so our hearts are, are sort of that part of our being that are made to be oriented to, to the glory of God, oriented toward our Father. So in the deepest part of our souls, we were created to know glory, to know our God. What sin does is it misorients the heart. Now, I know misorient is not a word, but uh, disorient had too many connotations, so I just decided to make up a new word, uh, misorient. And, so, you know, if we can mistype and we can misspeak and we can mishear and we can be misdirected, then we can be misoriented. Um, we were created to be oriented to God and His glory, but sin is the exchange of the glory of God for the glory of created things. So our orientation has become misdirected. It's misoriented. The, orienta the orientation of our hearts, though, is largely what determines and drives our behavior. Uh, the heart is central to human behavior. You know, there are reasons why you do what you do. Jesus says, as a tree is known by its fruit, so our hearts are known by their behavior. He says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. He says, from within, out of the heart of man, come sinful thoughts and actions. And so both worship on the one hand, right, love and knowledge and service of God, and sin on the other, come from within, out of the heart. So if our hearts were made to be oriented to our Creator, but sin misorients our heart toward creation... And the heart and its orientation are what primarily drive behavior, then the heart is the place where change must ultimately take place. If we want to grow in the Christian life, right, it's our hearts that must change. And what I mean by that is, uh, I mean a couple of things. I mean the heart as opposed to or in contrast to behavior in and of itself. I can do lots of good things and still hate God. But Jesus doesn't want to make me a better hypocrite. Sometimes we need to do things that we don't want to do, and that's, that's true, right? Sometimes our heart uh, isn't where we want it to be, but we know we need to do something, right? And so we do it in the hopes that our heart will follow. And that's, that's a part of life. But the very disconnect shows that there's a deeper change that is needed if we're going to live whole as human beings and not be divided. The heart is the place where change must take place. Yes, uh, but our behavior influences our heart, just as the heart issues forth in behavior, they're connected. But the heart is, is ground zero, so to speak, for change. It has priority. Right? God is giving us a new heart. When we say that, that the heart is the place where change must take place, I also mean the heart versus emotions. Um, your heart is not simply your emotions. Sometimes uh, we equate the two. 
right? When we think of the heart, we think of emotions. We think of Valentine's Day and we think of lovey-dovey, right? Um, but, but that's not true in Scripture. That's not what Scripture means by the heart. Uh, your, your emotions are complicated, as we started to talk about again this morning in Sunday school. Emotions are complicated, um, but there's something like, uh, uh, in part, our bodily response to life in light of our heart's orientation, somehow, right? Um, but when we talk about the heart, we mean our orientation either to God or to created things. So when we say that the heart is the place that change must take place, we mean the heart as opposed to merely the behavior. We mean the heart as opposed to simply our emotions. We mean the heart uh, versus our theology. It's easy to teach correct doctrine. But knowing correct doctrine doesn't mean that you have repented of self-love and have reoriented your heart toward your Father. Doctrine is important, don't get me wrong, Uh, truth by the Spirit working in us can change us. But doctrine, even doctrine, is a means to an end, right? It's a means to the end of knowing and loving and serving our God. When we say that the heart is the place that change must take place, I also mean the heart versus the body. You know, often our our bodies and our brains, because of the fall, might uh, need medication. Medication often mitigates the effects of uh, sin's presence in the world and the brokenness of the world because of sin's presence. But ultimately, no medication can make you godly because physical problems don't make us ungodly. I might be less grouchy toward my kids if I get enough sleep, But the lack of sleep is not what made me grouchy. It just shows the deep, often hidden grouchiness of my heart. Our hearts were made to worship our Creator, to be oriented around Him. But sin misorients our heart to created things, to created glories. But since the heart and its orientation drives behavior, what that means is to change our life, to change our behavior, our heart's orientation must change. Our hearts must be reoriented to God, to God's glory, to God's grace. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to step into Genesis chapter 3 now in light of that. Uh, we're going to see Genesis 3 almost as a, taste, uh, a case study of the misorientation of the heart. Um, we're not going to see everything in Genesis chapter 3. There are lots, there's lots that could be said. Uh, in fact, Deborah said to me last night, preaching is not meant to be exhaustive, Luke. And I had to stop and think about that for a minute. <laughs> and then slowly nod and realize, okay, that's right. So we're not going to see everything. Um, it's not going to be exhaustive. Uh, but we are going to look specifically at, at Genesis 3 to, to try to better understand the heart. So the mis- misorientation of our hearts. Uh, first, first, the first thing to look at in Genesis, 1, Genesis 3 is Satan's lies. Satan's lies. So verse 1. Uh, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. 
the first thing to notice uh, here in Genesis chapter 3 is that there's a talking snake. No, that's not natural. Uh, maybe Eve knew that. Maybe not. I mean, how long had she been around? Anyway, we don't really know. Um, scripture tells us elsewhere that this was Satan's handiwork. Now, you may think that's odd. Uh, for the moment, though, we're going to take that at face value. If you have questions about it, we can talk about that later. But what we're interested right now is in what the serpent's temptation tells us about the heart. Second, though, uh, notice the importance of words. Words influence the heart. I mean, we know the end of the story. The crafty serpent is persuading the heart of Eve. The whole temptation is done through words. Heart is influenced by words. Uh, and Satan does a couple things with his words. He questions God's generosity. He contradicts God's warning. He denies God's judgment. He accuses God of holding out, of hindering Adam and Eve's potential. God knows you will be like him. He doesn't want that, implies the serpent. But if I had to summarize Satan's lie, uh, this is it, right? This, this is the, the big lie that must, be undone, that must be undone in our hearts because it's there. The big lie is that God doesn't love you and you're on your own. God doesn't love you and you're on your own. Notice a few things in the conversation. The whole discussion implies that God is actually subject to Eve's judgment, Without saying so, the serpent implies that Eve has a right to judge God's motives. Uh, which means, really, even if Eve judges that God's motives were good, after all, Satan's kind of won. This is the first deception, right? Eve judging right from wrong apart from God. She's on her own. Satan tempts Eve to, be, to, to, to a kind of independent moral judgment. He's tricking Eve into autonomy. Did God really say this? Have you checked out God's motives? Are they right? By questioning God, by contradicting God, Eve is put into the place of judging who's right and who's wrong, God or Satan. Now, she could have said, right? Look, God said it, I believe it, right? Be gone, snake. The end. Uh, but it's a subtle temptation, isn't it? On some level, even to judge God as right is to put oneself in the place of God. And to put self in the place of God is to be without a God. You decide what's right and wrong, Satan says. You decide. Right? Have you ever heard that lie? You decide what's right and wrong. It's up to you. Ever believe that lie? I think most of us have at some point. Second thing that stands out, which further severs Eve from her dependence on God, you know, what is Satan getting at when he says, has God really said you can't have any tree? Is God really that stingy? You won't die, right? God just doesn't want you to be like him. What are the implications behind all of that? Satan is saying, God doesn't love you. God's not looking out for your best interest. God is holding out on you. God is holding you back. You could be like him if only he would let you. 
And so Satan encourages Eve to stand over God and, and judge who's right and who's wrong. And he tells her, God does not love you. He's not looking out for you. And you can hear the, the question that's implied there, right? If God's not looking out for you, who's going to look out for you, Eve? Who will care for you? Again, something we often hear, maybe in our own hearts, maybe someone says it out loud, but who's going to care for me? Do you ever feel alone, right? You feel like you've got to take matters into your own hand because there's nobody else looking out for you after all. Finally, Satan seals the deal when he says, when you eat, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You can be independent, Eve. You don't have to live under God. You can be like God yourself. So he says, God doesn't love you. You're, you're on your own. You must decide what's right and wrong, Eve. You need to take control of your life. You need to establish yourself as an independent woman, Eve. God doesn't love you. You're on your own. And this that, that's the great lie, right? God doesn't love you. You're on your own. And the, the sin which flows out of that lie is ultimately living in, living in light of it. It's Eve's attempt to make herself complete apart from God. Right? I can find wholeness. I can find completeness in life apart from what God said. I can find it in this tree. We'll come back to that. Notice that these are all lies that, that we tend to believe at some point. Right? God doesn't love you. You're on your own. Uh, you decide what's right and wrong. You need to take control of your life. What happens to the human heart when we hear those kinds of lies? I mean, notice they're all calculated to do one thing, to sever Eve's relationship with God. Right? If he doesn't love me, if he's not looking out for me, if, 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 uh, if, I, if I'm the one who decides right from wrong, if I have to take control of my life because he's not there... All of those lies are calculated to sever the relationship between us and God. Which of those are you most likely to believe? Which appeals to you? Which resonates? Do you feel like God's law is, is too strict? Like the serpent said? Well, you've bought the lie, right? That God doesn't love you. He's not looking out for you. He doesn't know what's best. You need to decide for yourself. Do you feel alone in the world? Like you've got to protect yourself, care for yourself, watch out for yourself, because no one else will. Uh, you've bought into the lie that you're on your own. Well, next, Eve's logic, right? So Satan's lie, Satan's temptations. Let's look at Eve's logic. All of Eve's thinking is summed up in one verse, verse 6. Verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Here's, here's what we see in that verse. Having bought into the lie right, that God doesn't love her and she's on her own, Eve looks at the world apart from God and she pursues its pleasure and power, right? The, the pleasure and the power that the world has to offer, right? Rather than rejoicing in God's love and resting in God's care, she pursues 
pleasure and power, right? The joy that the world offers and the control that she might have over it. Uh, first, the first phrase to notice is, is when the woman saw, right? The, the serpent taught Eve to walk by sight and not by faith. Uh, God no longer influences the way Eve sees life. What Eve sees has become more important than what God has said. So Eve begins a life of living as if God were not God, a life that's not based on God's word, but based on her own independent judgment. She looks at the world apart from God. I mean, God had said that if she ate from the tree, she would die, and she looks at it and thinks it's good for food. So clearly, right, there's something going on with her thinking there. Remember, the heart, the, the mind, the soul, the spirit is sort of the immaterial aspect of the human person meant to be oriented toward God, but now Eve sees the world apart from him. God's no longer in her picture. And she attempts to make herself complete apart from God. So in one verse, we see Eve seek to live, seek to love, seek to know, seek to choose apart from God. Uh, Eve delights in the tree, delights in the wisdom it has to offer, delights in the control that will come from that wisdom. Eve serves herself in that moment. What has Eve done? She's exchanged the glory of God for created things, right? Rather than delighting in God and trusting in God, she pursues the pleasure and power of the world. You know, all of us are, are living for something, for some glory, either the glory of God or some created glory. Either we want to know God's greatness or we want to know the greatness of this world. We're all living for some glory that will bring us joy, some glory that will make us feel safe. Of course, it's not that this world and, and its glory uh, is bad. God made the world. He made it good. When John says in, in 1 John, do not love the world, he doesn't mean the world is bad and don't enjoy it. It's not what he means. The problem is not the world. The problem is worldliness. What does that mean, right? Worldliness in Scripture is when we, when we act as if the world is all there is. When we fixate on this life and cease to lift our eyes to our God. It's not this world that is the problem. It's not even enjoying this world that is the problem. We should enjoy it, right? That's one of the reasons God made it for us to enjoy. But when we act as if this world is all that there is, when we love the world instead of God, in place of God, or more than God, when our hearts become misoriented, when our desires become misordered, that's the problem, right? And that's what happened to Eve. Right? What, what glory was Eve living for in that moment? Well, for one, the, the glory of physical pleasure. Right? She saw that the tree was good for food. It looked tasty. Maybe even good for her, right? Look at this fruit. It looks good. Now, again, ignoring God has twisted her thinking, right? God says the tree will kill her. She thinks it will be good for food. Uh, the New Testament talks about this in terms of the, the lust of the flesh. Um, what that means is any uh, out-of-control desire for physical pleasure. That's what that phrase means, lust of the flesh. Sort of a, a, a lust is an out-of-control desire um, for physical pleasure, anything that feels good is what it's getting at. Pleasure's not bad, again, pleasure's good, but even pleasure has an end outside of the world, the glory of God, 
Right? We enjoy this world to God's glory. The glories of this world point us to the greater glory of the one who made the world, the glory of the one who invented pleasure, the glory of the one who designed your taste buds and your olfactory senses. The question is not, do we enjoy the world? We were made, I mean, we were physically built to enjoy the world, right? The question is, has feeling good hijacked your heart? Do you seek physical delight apart from God, as Eve was doing in that moment? Is the world there simply for your pleasure? Rather than living to enjoy the glory of God, rather than looking to God to complete her, Eve was living for the glory of physical pleasure. She sees that the, good, that, that the tree is good for food and the glory of physical beauty. Notice, she sees the tree is a delight to the eyes. Again, uh, in uh, 1 John, John calls this the lust of the eyes. Right? Beauty, too, can capture our hearts, can't it? Uh, the world uh, appeals to us with beauty all the time. And, and it's not just sex, either. Right? I mean, that's one way the world appeals to us with physical beauty, but lots of other things. I, I happen to think my MacBook is a beautiful thing, right? It's well-designed. I mean, they spend a lot of time working on that. Um, you know, the beauty of, uh, of uh, a finely designed app, right? Or even a, a carefully crafted pair of Clark's shoes, right? right? Those things can be beautiful, can't they? And, they? and they can capture our hearts. We can be focused on the way those things look. Beauty appeals to us. We have a thing about appearances, especially in our culture. Beauty, too, is not bad, right? None of those things are bad. Uh, God made beauty. He made beauty to be enjoyed. He's the one who gave us eyes. He's the one who gave us an, a, a sense of aesthetics. The question is, has it captured your heart? Has it hijacked your soul? Are you living for physical pleasure? Are you living for physical beauty? Eve is also living for uh, the glory of, of simply being independent, right? Being autonomous, right? Being out on her own, thinking on her own, trying to control the world around her in her own strength. Uh, it, the, the tree, uh, we're told, was desirable, she sees, to make one wise. Wisdom is not just a mental category. We tend to talk about it as the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and we think of it as just bare knowledge, the way we think about knowledge in the 21st century. But, but wisdom, right? biblically, wisdom is about skill. It's about ability. It's about being able to manipulate the world or act within the world wisely. So the tree promised control. It promised mastery over life. Eve, you can master life all by yourself. You don't need God. How many of us have bought into that lie? That we might master this life, right? That we might bring it under our sway. That we might be in control. So Eve, having bought into Satan's lie, right? That, that God does not love her. She's on her own. She's looked at the world apart from God. And she's pursuing its pleasure and power. Once Eve is severed from God's love and God's care, the glories of pleasure and power took his place. Right? Without God's love, earthly joy is, is all there is. Without God's fatherly oversight, we must take control to ensure our place in the world, to feel safe. What glory has a hold of your heart? 
What do you cling to in this life? What pleasures are you living for? What do you, what do you feel you, you must, do you feel, where do you feel that you must look out for yourself because God's not going to care for you? Where is that sneaky suspicion that, that God doesn't love me here? He's not going to take care of me. Our life is meant to be found in our relationship to our God, our joy to be found in His greatness, our, our delight in gazing upon His beauty, our, our safety found in His love and care. But if I have this sneaky suspicion that God doesn't love me, now I have to find life, I have to complete myself, I have to get safety somewhere else apart from Him. And that's what Eve is doing. And what's the result? Right? When you believe the lie that, that God doesn't love you, you're on your own, you look to the world to give you what only God can give, rather than finding joy and safety, you find fear and shame. It, Jeremiah, we read a, a couple verses out of Jeremiah earlier. Jeremiah chapter 2, I think it was. Jeremiah says, uh, God's people have committed two evils. They've forsaken God, the fountain of living waters, and they dug out cisterns, wells, for themselves, broken wells that can hold no water. The world is, is like a broken cistern, apart from God. When we turn to the world to provide what only God can provide, the result is shame, not satisfaction. You know, already in Satan's lies and in, and in Eve's logic, we, we've seen that the lie that we must establish ourselves apart from God, establish our identity apart from God, right? Satan says, basically, Eve, if you reject God and disobey, you will be as God. You, you can define yourself apart from him. You don't, you don't need him to define you. You don't need him to tell you right from wrong. You can define yourself. You can be glorious apart from him. The problem is it's a lie. Right? So Adam and Eve disobey God, but it's not then that they experience some kind of independent glory. Now I, now I have the glory of wisdom. Now I'm like God. No, rather they experience the shame of independence. You know, in chapter 2, verse 25, uh, Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. Suddenly in chapter 3, verse 7, they know their nakedness. Sin has brought shame. In the beginning, Adam and Eve had a glory. They were clothed in something. They were clothed in glory. They, they had a glory in part by association, right? It's like when you know someone famous, you're always trying to drop in that name, right? Because you know there's a kind of glory by association. You're trying to get it. Like, did I tell you about the time that I met? Right. Adam and Eve were, were image bearers of God, they walked with him in the garden. They reflected his righteousness. They were glorious. And striving to gain for themselves some kind of independent glory, they actually lost the glory of God, which was God's gift from the start. The image of God in them was marred. They were now naked, and they knew it. Which brings us to Adam's strategies. What do we do with our shame? We hide it. Why? Why do we hide it? Because we're terrified that someone might see. That someone might realize 
I'm not what I was meant to be. I'm broken. There's something wrong with me. And we don't want anybody to know that. And so we hide. What do we do with our shame? We hide it. How do we do that? We, we dress ourselves in fig leaves. That's what Adam did. We do whatever we can to hide the shame and to make ourselves glorious again. Right? Now that the image of God in us is marred, we look for some kind of glory substitute. It may be as simple as dressing up and trying to look good, trying to project physically, visibly, an image of glory. Right? Look at how great I am. It may be boasting in our intelligence or our strength or our skills or our achievements, but we try to find something, some glory, that we can put forward to the world. I, I actually, I remember noting, n- noticing this when I was about 12. Uh, I remember realizing everybody has something, right? Uh, some people are jocks, right? And they can sort of boast in their achievements on the football field. Some people are skaters, it was the early 90s. Um, some, some kids play in a band. Uh, some people are preppy. Some people are kind of nerdy. Everybody has their thing, right? Their thing that they're known for, right? Glory language. Everybody has something that defines them. I, I didn't, uh, which I thought was a bad thing. <laughs> I thought that was a problem. I'm like, what, what, what am I? Who am I? Uh, and I actively looked for some glory in this life to define me. I was, I was looking around thinking, what glory I didn't use that term. I didn't think in those terms. But I was looking around trying to find what thing in this life will cover my shame. I was looking for some way where I could say, I'm like God in this. See, having lost the glory of of communion with God, having lost the glory of, of the righteousness in which they were made, having lost the glory of the unmarred image of God, we turn to created things. We don't want people to see the the shame, the ruin of our souls. And so we put on fig leaves. We hide behind bushes. We play to our strengths. What fig leaves are you wearing? What are you hiding behind? What are you boasting in? What are you building your identity on? What, What do you try to project to people? You know, one way of thinking about that nowadays, right, is, is look at your Facebook page and the posts that you make there and can contrast that with the real you, right? right? That's the image that you're trying to project. You're trying to show something to the world out there. Satan's lie is God doesn't love you. You're on your own. Eve's logic, having bought the lie, is she looks at the world then, apart from God, and pursues the pleasure and the power that the world has to offer The result is shame, not satisfaction, as she thought. And so what do we do? We strive to regain our lost glory through boasting in the flesh and blaming others when all else fails, which is what Adam and Eve ultimately do. Are we a mess or what? (laughs) Right? This is what goes on in our hearts. We we buy into Satan's lies, we pursue the world, we experience shame, and we do everything we can to cover it up and hope nobody notices. And we're all doing it. I think that's funny. I think there's something funny in that. Where does that leave us? It leaves us with the grace that our hearts desperately need. 
What do we need? Well, think about, think about how it all started, right? It, it started with Satan's lies about God's love. God doesn't love you. He's not looking out for you, right? And those lies about God's love turned us from God to the world for satisfaction and safety. Well, what do we need? We need to know. We need to know God's love. We need to know God's love. We need to know that we're not on our own. So we can turn back to him and find his love and care. How does that happen? Well, it, it happens through Christ. It happens through Christ, who is God with us. Right? Not you're on your own, but God come in the flesh, step into the world with us. A God who is with us, who comes to display the love of the Father in the cross. Right? God knows the lie of Satan. God doesn't love you, you're on your own. And so he comes to be with us. He, he comes to put his love on display. In sin, in the garden, man seeks to rival God. But by grace on the cross, God, in the incarnation in the cross, God stoops to become a man and to bear sin for us. He comes to bear our sin, right? To remove our shame, to restore us to fellowship, to welcome us home again. And we need that kind of welcoming grace, right? Like the prodigal son, arms wide open grace. I forgive you grace, right? Take my robe, the father says. I'll cover your shame. I'll not hold it against you. I'll put a ring on your finger and make you glorious and put you in a position of honor again, grace. It's this kind of grace that will break through our hard hearts and show us that God loves us extravagantly. It's this kind that will enable us to, to take off our fig leaves and step into the light of exposure. How do we receive that grace? How do we receive that welcoming grace? Well, it comes to us through words, doesn't it? It comes through words. Satan's lies get into our hearts through words. God doesn't love you. You're on your own. God's love gets into our hearts through words as well, through the message of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as a sacrifice for our sins. In this we know love that Jesus laid down his life for us. Right? The message of grace combats the lies of the evil one. And as a result of knowing that, as a result of God's love, we, we can be open and honest. Right? God's love means we don't have to hide. Love opens us up to exposure. I use the word exposure on purpose because we cringe at the word exposure. We don't like ex exposure. is always a bad thing. But think about it. Why, why, why don't we expose our sin? We're afraid, right? Fear. And yet the New Testament tells us that perfect love casts out fear. So we can confess our sins. And we can be forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. See, as long as we hide, we haven't learned to live in light of grace. Not fully, not yet. Maybe we get it a little bit. I think I mentioned this last week, but I don't remember when. But uh, it's easy to, conf it, well, it's a step in the right direction to confess together that we're sinful. Right? It's a step in the right direction to say, I'm sinful. That's, that's kind of easy, though. It's a lot harder to talk about my particular sins. Right? 
here's what I'm struggling with. Right? That's much harder than, oh yeah, I'm sinful, I know we're sinful. Right? As long as we hide, we haven't learned to live in light of grace. God's love in Christ means we can be honest about our weaknesses and our failures and our sins. We can take off the fig leaves and come out from the bush and stop blaming and just be honest. Yeah, I'm a mess. And here's how. As a result of God's love, we can also let go of the reins. Um, God's love means that we're not alone. We don't have to figure out life on our own. We don't have to do life by ourselves. We don't have to control. I don't have to have God-like wisdom because I have a God who is working all things out for his glory and my good. Once again, we can, we can trust, right? We can walk with God. We can find joy in him. Our hearts can once again find fullness in him. As a result of God's love, we, we can not only be honest about our weakness and failures, we can not only let go of the reins and trust him, but we can love others as well. We can show the same love that we have been shown. Only once I stop living for my own pleasure and safety am I free to love others well. Um, Because as as long as I'm living for those things, other people are, maybe I, I, uh, I pull them into my agenda and use them for my own pleasure and safety. Maybe I see them as enemies, people who are gonna take away from my pleasure and safety, but I can't love them until I know that I'm loved, until I know God loves me, God's going to care for me, and then I'm free to love those around me. That may mean telling others about Jesus. It may mean uh, showing them acceptance and grace, simply showing them the acceptance and grace that you have been shown. It, it may be something simple like a hug, right? embracing someone physically to demonstrate the acceptance that we have found in the gospel. But as a result of God's love, we are free to love others well. As you go out this week, don't believe the lie. Know that God has come to be with us and demonstrated his love for us in the cross. And then show that same love to those around you, to the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for uh, we thank you for your love. Father, even saying those words seems uh, inadequate. We thank you for your love. We don't we don't get it fully. I don't get it fully. Father, show us the depth of your love. Work in us gratitude that explodes, gratitude that boils over, gratitude for your love that just cannot contain itself because we get your love, because we see it displayed in the cross, because we know that that you will care for us. You will never leave us or forsake us. Help us to rest in that and rejoice in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.